0: I'm going to take the right-hand mic because I'm right-handed. Um, thank you all for coming. It's great to be here. This is actually my first author appearance in L.A. ever. Um, and uh, awfully nice to see a sprinkling of familiar faces in the audience. Um, so, yeah, the other Paris. And I'm going to, well, you all had it explained to you. So, I w- We'll go cut straight to the chase. In the early years of the 20th century, the anarchists hunkered down. They only rarely put up posters anymore. They claimed it had been printed by the Éprimerie Nationale, or the Ministry of State. But they still organized house moves à la cloche de bois, which means to skip out, literally by the wooden bell. They still held their meetings on the cheap by walking in on meetings of other political groups and simply hijacking the podium. <laughs> but now the anarchists were younger, more ragtag, more personally troubled, less in public view, less grounded in tradition. Until his early death in 1908, their most visible spokesman was a man who called himself Albert Libertad, an orphan whom early illness had left with withered legs and who propelled himself on two crutches, which he could use as formidable battering instruments. He was generally accompanied by the sisters Ahmadine and Anna Maé, both of them his lovers, one or both of them the mothers of his sons, Minus and Diamant. He was a cynic, bitterly sarcastic, famous for haranguing priests in the pulpit during services at the Sacré-Cœur. Among his followers, according to an early adherent, you found every sort, very studious quasi-intellectuals, poets, and also, necessarily, informants and provocateurs. And then there were the scientific types. Confirmed in their ignorance, smart Alex always on the hunt for some scheme. They were attempting to refashion the rules of life from its essential principles. Most were vegetarians, even vegans, vegetalia, and drank only water. They read Darwin and Huxley and sought a scientific rationale for an ideal existence freed from an unthinking adherence to social norms. The autonomous social cell bows to no law and no prejudice. The right to life justifies everything. The lives of others are no longer sacred for us. Only what matters to our eye can have any value in our eyes. If in order to survive, I have to crush thousands of troglodytes, I'll do it with no remorse. If we have to cut down everything that surrounds us, let's not hesitate. As Amy Laurie put it, there are no innocent victims. Let's hit hard. Let's be strong. That is the true moral law of life, as biology teaches us. That's how to be a real revolutionary, nothing to do with the mystical and redundant babble of the workers, charlatans. It's galling to think that with no knowledge of anatomy or astronomy, nor psychology, nor zoology, nor embryology, idiots presume to address the social question. There was always, on every issue, someone with a more radical stance. It was agreed that marriage was legalized prostitution and the family an incubator of misery. Someone might say, «Cohabitation, that's our worst enemy!» It can't be engaged in without compromises and consequent servitude. Anarchism must give the social cell, the individual, complete autonomy. It would be idle to abolish marriage only to substitute for it a bond that is equally as servile for all that it isn't legalized. At the communal house in suburban Romainville where the editorial offices of l'anarchie were located, a sign on the door to the library read, Idlers, crooks, drunks, stinkers, climbers, snobs, hysterics, eggheads, gas bags of every description, do not pass through the store. Death awaits you. <laughs> Painted on the library wall was a motto, if you want to live, be your own best friend. It was from this milieu that the Bonneau gang emerged. It was a misnomer from the start. Jules Bonneau was an excellent driver. He was a professional chauffeur who'd driven Arthur Conan Doyle and the prolific true crime hack H. Ashton Wolfe, among others. So he was a known quantity the press the pres- could latch onto, And he was also, at 35, by far the oldest, but he was really only a driver. The rest were all young working-class autodidacts, quite a number of them orphans, all of them laboring since age 12 or 13. Edouard Caruy, 28, a Belgian, had worked in a sugar refinery. Octave Garnier, 22, from Fontainebleau, was a baker. René Vallet, 21, from Verdun, was a locksmith and typesetter. André Soudy, 19, from near Orléans, was a grocery clerk. Eugène Dieudonné, 27, was a carpenter's apprentice from Nancy. Raymond Calment, 21, called Raymond La was a typesetter from Brussels. Elie Monnier, 22, called Cimentoff, was a peasant from the Pyrénées Orientales. On December 11, 1911, a bank messenger was making his way down Rue Ordener in Montmartre, north of the hill, to the local branch of the Société Générale, carrying a bag containing 300,000 francs in securities and another bag containing 5,000 francs in coins, while in an inner pocket of his coat, a wallet held 20,000 francs in banknotes and a bit of gold. He wore the uniform of his trade, a sky-blue frock coat and a Napoleon hat. A car stopped and a man got out. Without a word, he shot the messenger twice and grabbed his bags, while a second man went through the messenger's pockets. The automobile took off. It was the world's first getaway car. The car was found abandoned the following day in Dieppe on the coast. As soon as the news hit the press, the bandits were seen everywhere in Europe, but at first nobody thought of the anarchists, although many lived just up the hill from the robbery. Two days after the new year, a 91-year-old Rotier and his housekeeper were found murdered in the southeastern suburbs. Around 20,000 francs in securities and gold pieces were missing. Witnesses in the neighborhood who were shown photographs identified Garnier, and after his name appeared in the newspapers, the bank messenger who had survived also pegged him. In addition, he claimed to identify Dieudonné, who was irrefutably in Nancy on, on December 21st. The police tossed the Romainville house and arrested everyone there, then let everybody go except Riret-Metrojean, 24, and Viktor levovich Kibalchich, 21, despite the fact that they had no demonstrable connection with the case. Meanwhile, a crime wave had broken out. There were car thefts and robberies of stores, post offices, factories and armories all over France and Belgium. The police were objects of widespread ridicule. On February twenty eighth, a car running down Rue d'Amsterdam almost hit a bus, knocked over a woman, then was blocked by the bus and had to stop. A traffic cop, who happened to also be named Garnier, started writing a ticket, but the car took off with him clinging to the running board. He was shot from three times inside the car and died soon after. The police, in hot pursuit, hit a pedestrian and had to stop. The car vanished. Eyewitnesses identified the shooter as Garnier and the driver as Bonneau, with Calment in the back. A wave of arrests swept up Dieudonné. Garnier wrote an open letter to the newspapers, taking responsibility and clearing him. A month later, six of the gang stole a car and killed the driver, then drove to Chartilly and raided the Société Générale. The employees resisted. One was killed. The bandits emptied the coffers to the tune of 47,555 francs. A witness pegged Soudi. Hysteria ensued with denunciations and false leads galore. The prosecutor received as many as 700 letters a day. Thirteen associates of the gang were indicted. Soudi was arrested in a coastal town. Caharas loaded down with three Brownings. Bonneau got away with from the cops once and then on April 22nd was tracked down to a garage in Choisy-le-Roi in the southeastern suburbs. The police who didn't know he was alone called in reinforcements, firemen two companies of the Garde Républicaine a cordon of volunteer sh- sharpshooters taking in the scene were the Attorney General a party of judges and VIPs and a film crew from Pâté The house was soon riddled with bullets, but Bonnot kept firing, so the police dragged in a cart loaded with explosives. After an initial misfire, there followed two explosions. Somehow the house was still standing, although there was no sign of life from within. The cops broke in, shielding themselves with mattresses, and found the mortally wounded Bonnot, also wrapped in in a mattress. According to legend, he shot at them, although by that time he'd already put two bullets in his head. He died on the way to the hospital. A piece of paper was found in which he exonerated Giudonni and four other people. It is said that he died exclaiming, Giudonni is innocent! Newspapers pointed out that Bonneau alone, equipped with just one revolver with a 50-foot range, his other arm paralyzed from a wound received in a previous encounter with the police, had managed to hold at bay an army equipped with Lebel rifles and dynamite. Leo Blois wrote, The newspapers are full of heroes. Everybody was heroic except Bonneau. The entire population, flouting laws, took up arms and fired away while shielding themselves. I confess that all my sympathy goes to the desperado, giving his life in order to scare them, and I think that God will judge them more harshly. A few days later, Garnier and Valet were tracked to a house retracted uh, to, to the eastern suburb of Nogent-sur-Marne to a house in a densely populated area. Gendarmes, firemen and Republican guards surrounded the house while Zouaves stood on the viaduct overhead and rolled boulders down, aiming at the house. As firemen fired from surrounding rooftops and bombs were thrown to no effect, spectators showed up, some in evening dress, some with picnic baskets. The gun battle went on for hours, Sometime after midnight, a huge explosion shook the house, and when the wall of smoke cleared, Garnier and Valet were found dead in a pool of blood. In 1947, Leo Mallet wrote a novel called La Vie dégueulasse, which means Life Sucks, that featured a character loosely modeled on Garnier. As a teenage runaway, Malais had been taken in by veterans of the Romainville Commune, acquaintances of the gang, who in the 1920s ran a vegan cooperative on Rue de Tolbiac. His character, Jean Frege, a member of a revolutionary gang inspired by the teachings of a sinister oracle called Christ, is on the run from the police following a motorized caper. Along the way, he's met and fallen in love with Gloria, who doesn't know his true identity. He is itchy and paranoid as well as jealous. Disturbed by Gloria's periodic absences, he follows her to the house of friends. The husband of the couple is a psychoanalyst who notes Frege's anxieties and persuades him to unburden himself serially. During their second session, the women rush in from an adjoining room. The newspapers have reported that one of Frégé's comrades has given him up. Frégé takes out his revolver and holds the three captive, while the analyst coolly continues the session. There's your penis, he says, pointing to the gun. (laughs) Your life has been nothing but a long, artful suicide. Twitching, unsure if he'll kill himself or the others, or he will kill the others or kill himself Frege says I would so much have liked to live and rushes out two weeks later he bursts into a precinct house on the point of death from starvation but waving his gun and begging the cops to shoot him in the crotch they oblige Eight months elapsed before the surviving gang members went on trial. Caruic, Calmin, Soudi, Monnier, Dieudonné, Maître Jean, Kibalcich, and seven other people faced charges ranging from murder to receiving stolen property and harboring fugitives. During their time in the santé, twen- seven of the bandits were examined by Emile Michon, the prison psychologist, who questioned them on every possible topic. In the resulting book, with this improbably lovely title, A Little of the Bandit's Soul, he had never identifies them by name, with the sole exception of Kibalcic, because I will never be able to I, consider him an evildoer. The result being that they become a blurry mass, bugs in a jar. Still, Michel's ambivalences add up to a convincing group portrait. They intellectualized their emotions. They were so invested in their eye that they were so often ignorant of the most basic facts about others. They were ascetics, even in matters of the heart. They had excellent memories. Most of them could lecture endlessly on Spinoza, Lamarck, Schopenhauer, the sciences. They were slobs. <laughs> they seem to want to attach themselves to nothing, and they dread all discipline, even that of habit. They are inconstant in every sense of the word. They come and go, move, travel, are always leaving someone. When they arrive somewhere, they go away again almost immediately. They settle nowhere. Since they are always wanted for some infraction or violation, they change names as easily as they change addresses, and they sleep with one eye open. Extrapolating a bit from his account, you can figure that Monnier from the Midi, was the warmest and most passionate, Raymond Remolations, cold and pedantic, Carouille was stolid and slow, Dieudonné, earnest and deliberate. Michaud refers to only one of them as a psychopath, by a process of elimination that would leave Soudi, who had himself photographed aiming a rifle at the camera. Before even being sentenced, Karoui had bit down on a cyanide capsule he'd obtained somehow. Seven, including Riretmetre Jean and the two other women, were acquitted. Three were sentenced to prison terms, including Kibalcich, who served his five years, then changed his name to Victor Serge. He fought in the revolutions in Spain and Russia, was among the first to warn the West about Stalin, wrote extraordinary books. Dieu donner, despite all the efforts to exonerate him was sentenced to death and then the sentence was commuted to life in the penal colony Sudi, Calment and Monnier all married the widow they went to the guillotine on his way Monnier said farewell to you all gentlemen and to society as well Calment said it's a beautiful sight isn't it a man who's about to die Sudi said it's cold. <laughs> Calmain and Monnier left their bodies to science. Monnier to surgical anatomy, Calmain to biochem- biochemical research. His disembodied hands remain preserved in formaldehyde at the medical legal institute in Lille. Soudi left his brain to the dean of the medical faculty at the University of Paris, his burglary tools to the ministry of war his skull to the museum of anthropology that it be exhibited and the profits given to soup kitchens his hair for the barbers union to sell to benefit the cause and his autograph to l'anarchie so that Priests and apostles of philosophy can use it to further their cynical individualism. Instead, he was buried in Ivry.
1: Wow, thanks for coming, everybody. Well, you probably noticed all the great pronunciations that Luke was uh, using during his reading, and I think those who don't know him that well, I guess maybe that's a good place to start, Luke. Your first language was French, correct?
0: Yep. (laughs) Um, Belgian French. Belgian French, which is what... Which uh, would be, you know, which um, true Parisians can't understand. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I I guess
1: a lot of you are probably here because you were a fan of Luke's... uh, Earlier book, low life lures and Snares of Old New York, and to some degree, this book has a lot of similarities and I'm curious if you yourself view it as a sequel of sorts um based
0: on you know the time period that's being covered and and the material yes, in fact um well this the idea to write a book about Paris was sort of presented to me by my agent and publisher because you know i'm I don't think of things as obvious as writing a book about Paris which is the obvious thing to do Uh, I would think about writing a book about some you know tiny obscure thing Um, and my first thought upon receiving this assignment was oh they want low life Paris huh great and then I proceeded to forget all about this and spend four or five years worrying how am I going to write a book about Paris when there are already 450 thousand of them in English and they all pretty much say the same thing And then finally, after an interval, I remembered, yeah, Low Life Paris. So essentially, I make no secret of it. And how long was this idea
1: incubating in your head? Because Low Life was almost 25 years ago, correct?
0: Yeah, I mean, well, uh, in a way, I can honestly say that I've been in one form or another researching this book since I was a teenager. Um, But, um, you know, it's... um, there's a lot that, a great deal that I learned in the course of actually doing the work on the book itself. And what, what was your initial, uh, I guess, impetus to become interested,
1: in, and you've even used the word obsessed with, I guess, the, the down and out or, uh, you know, the, the, the vice of the city?
0: Well, you know, the down and out and the vice are not my immediate preoccupation. I mean, my immediate preoccupation, my immediate thought was to write a book about, and this was true of New York too, it's the city of the poor, uh, the city of the working class. And that's because that's where I come from. My whole family, workers on one side, peasants on the other. Um, nobody. Uh, up until me went to school past the age of 16. So, you know, it's, I feel a deep identification with this class, which is, you know, sometimes held not to exist anymore in the Western nations.
1: I mean, especially in Paris nowadays, I've noticed a lot of Parisians actually moving here, and when I ask them simple questions as to why, uh, some of it has to do with how chronically unaffordable it is. I guess the same can be said of New York, and I was curious if you had any thoughts about that.
0: Well yeah the cities you know it's um Oh boy, capitalism, <laughs> scarcity, and overpopulation, um, and where it will all end—you know, who knows? Um, the fact is, it's a worldwide story. Um, every major city is facing this in larger or smaller degree. Paris, and even New York. I mean, London is the extreme example. It's—you um, know—we're—you know—I I forget the percentage, but some astounding percentage that's essentially a, absentee tenants or absentee. It's Russian oligarchs. (laughs) Yeah, right. Um, So yeah, um, it's, um, and to those of us who lived in these cities, especially those of us who lived in these cities uh, in the 1970s or even in the 1980s, um, there's a sense of having made these places our home, you know, kind of like, basically, you find an object on the street, and it's precious to you, and you consider it yours. But then somebody comes along with a lot of money and decides that, by virtue of their having a lot of money, now it's theirs. It doesn't belong to you anymore. Well, but the f- the idea of the
1: flaneur Am I, if I pronouncing that right? Um, I think it never I mean obviously Paris invented it, the term, the term itself but um, I'm curious, while working on this book, how much research did you do on the ground
0: there? Um, I went there a bunch of times, um, a lot, and I walked. You know, I walked and walked and walked and walked. I used the term flaneur sort of advisedly. Um, you know, it's famous from Baudelaire, especially, but I kind of expanded the focus. I, I made it a little wobbly so that I could include all kinds of people. Um, but essentially, it, it. I used it as kind of shorthand for people who take an interest in the city at street level and note all its details and its changes and have, you know, sympathy, basic sympathy for the city and its inhabitants. I know this doesn't line up perfectly, but when I
1: first got a copy of the galley of this book, I immediately thought of Brasai, even though there's not a lot of stuff in the book about him. Um, You also are, you know... Write extensively and, and teach uh, photography, so i'm curious was uh, was he sort of an inspiration for you uh, growing up um, and what were other um, I, I guess other other folks, a lot of which are covered in the book
0: um, you know were any of these bellwethers to eventually writing this book um, yeah, I mean the Oh, the book comes from all kinds of places. Well, Brassai specifically. Um, Brassai is fantastic. I do talk about him in the book. There are no Brassai pictures in the book, as there are not pictures by a lot of people who I would have liked to include, but I've got to say, I mean, the Brassai estate is incredible. Um, I, I wrote a little. Reviewish thing of the last collection of Brassai that came out the last year or the year before for the New York Review of Books blog. And the blog entry was actually held up for two months while they settled the matter of um, remuneration or whatever it was with the estate, because that's how crazy they are about controlling rights. And that was for a review of a book of his work um, so I wasn't going to go there um, so Brassard yeah definitely an inspiration at least well not as a kid but you know the book that came out in 1976 called The Secret Paris of the 30s and was absolutely huge influence on everybody I know pretty much um, so he was one and the surrealist um, Aragons, um Paris peasant de Paris, and um, Golly, I mean, Baudelaire, obviously, um, and yeah. I mean, what, and, and with regards to cultural historians,
1: I uh, is, was there anybody that a predecessor of yours that was that you feel indebted to that sort of started to to write about this kind of thing? Uh, I, I guess
0: maybe I think of Richard Cobb's book. Richard um, Cobb, yeah. Uh, but even more, um, the I, you know, I don't tend to. I, tend to go for primary sources. I, I like much better you know, quoting from novels and memoirs and stuff like that, but the one historian who was, and Richard Cobb was great, but um, he, mostly he served me as a, as a flaneur, as an essayist and a memoirist, rather than as a historian. He's a historian of the, uh, the French Revolution. Primarily, but the the one historian who was a huge a huge assistance to me is um, Louis Chevalier, who was the great French historian of the of the poor, um, the the working and dangerous classes, as he puts it. You said this book is not really a polemic, but more of a catacomb, and I was wondering if you could, you know, speak to that a little bit. Well, you know, it's not a polemic, except in the sense that. Um, by the way, I mean, it was mo- it was a bit more of a polemic. And then my first reader said, you're nagging. So I cut out <laughs> a lot of shit. Um, but I don't want to be a nag. But, um, but it, you know, a polemic becomes a catacomb by virtue of uh, trying to keep people from forgetting. I mean, not just forgetting the poor and um, how, you know, the hand they had in making Paris... Paris culturally and otherwise but um, in just memorializing remembering that there are other ways to live than the ways in which we live now I mean they might not all be that comfortable but the fact is that there are ways in which you might say that the people in the past might not have had as much to eat and they might not have slept as comfortably but possibly just possibly they were freer than we are nowadays I'm sure this is
1: going to be a hard question to answer, but there seems to be so many wormholes you could go down while researching a subject like this. I'm curious, um, how did you know that you'd
0: done enough research to then just start the manuscript, or was it done in fits and starts over many years? Well, there was a fits and starts over many years, and then there was a concentrated period of like a year and a half where I really, you know, knuckled down. and um, I just, you know, there, I, it had to come to an end. It had been sitting on my head for an outrageously long time. My son went from the age of 5 to the age of 15 in the course of this, you know, so that was like a real objective correlative right there. Uh, hey, you're the, giving him driving lessons. Yeah, oh, right. i got to finish this book. The other thing is that um, I... Uh, I um, Owing to the difficulty of data management, this is the first time in my entire life I used index cards. Yeah. <laughs> um, I always like kept things in my head or something like that, but this was impossible anyway. Um, I only used half maybe less than half of my notes um, and you know I, I was determined not to turn this book into a doorstop. I told myself right away 300 pages. That way people will actually read it. If it's 900 pages it might decorate coffee tables but that's not my purpose. Um, So a lot of, you know, and flow also because writing, you know, you you can research and research and research and assemble all these facts and they're great and you fall in love with them but then the writing takes on a life of its own and it determines flow and flow takes you by surprise sometimes and you know there's this, all this great, these great stories over here but they don't fit I mean there are things that um, until the last minute I thought I was going to be able to fit in X and yeah it didn't, too bad sorry
1: <laughs> uh, contrary to Low Life, this book actually is highly illustrated. Um, was that part of the conceit from the beginning? Like, uh, that you wanted to have visual
0: illustrations? Well, you know, doing Low Life, I was a novice. It was my first book. And, um, and you know, I turned in my manuscript, my publisher said, you've got to get some pictures in here. Okay, so um, I did the rounds of the uh, major you know, pictorial resources of that era. Wasn't yet Corbis, etc, um, and I found myself, okay, I got some pretty good pictures and, um, and they were reproduced. well, they were reproduced in this section. they look like crap, but anyway, but I also found out that many, if not most, of these pictures were actually in the public domain, but I kept having to pay rights for the paperback edition, the Italian edition, et cetera. So I was determined to keep that from happening again. So the minute I got the contract, I started collecting pictures um, out of books, out of magazines, out of newspapers, eBay, flea markets, you name it, and I ended up with about 900 pictures. And um, I sort of presented these. You know, I said to my editor, I said, By the way, I have these 900 pictures kind of dreading. They would end up being a selection of 32 carefully chosen in some, you know, shiny paged insert. And no, instead, they had the brilliant idea of this marginal structure here um, where they appear, um, you know, I mean, I wish some of them were bigger and better detailed. You know, but yet it was a it was a choice. Um, I like to think of them as like little pictures in the dictionary. They're an immediate reference, and and there I think there might there's there's something very close to 365 of them, one for every day of the year. So I'm very happy with the way it turned out. How uh, is that the uh, the benchmark? 365, one for every day of the year. Well, I actually well I had. The, the final tally was actually like 375, but I had to sacrifice 10 to legal matters. Okay.
1: <laughs> well, I should stop rambling and maybe take some questions from the audience. This is being recorded for a podcast series that they do here. So, does anyone have any questions? And if so, uh, could you speak up so we can make sure it's recorded? One of the
0: things that
1: I for a time and it was the importance of songs uh and particularly from periods where people were poorer
0: yeah and
1: you know i mean here in america we don't sing songs from the 1920s or from the 1890s and you can go places and people everybody knows the words and it's not just older people it right songs still live in people and these memories of a time when people were poorer but maybe somehow more interdependent, and so bonds between people were stronger, I and mean, yeah, really I mean, do you get a real feeling. Does music play a part in your book?
0: Yeah, you know? certainly music yeah. plays a Big part in the book, yeah. I mean, you know, the, the the America is not completely free of such things either. I mean, all you have to do is watch some Warner Brothers cartoons and, you know, camp camptown races, etc. There is there are still very old songs that have made it in, survive in popular memory. But it's true that it's stronger in France. And uh, songs show up in several ways because um, I talk about, you know, the revolutionary songs to some, some extent and also um, the careers of the, sh- the the realist singers you know who begin with Eugénie Buffet at the end of the 19th century and go to Piaf well they go they extend beyond Piaf but I kind of chose to end that chronicle with Piaf certainly um, Freel and Damia are, are very important people in this book and very inspirational figures to me they're um, and um, they're as great in the chronicling of Paris as any writer or visual artist, and they're not generally known, but to Americans. So I thought it was important to mention them.
1: And so, what's the sort of a big, is there sort of a time span? Uh,
0: well, it's not chronological, you know, but um, in it sort of goes from shortly after the fall of Napoleon to around the time of the destruction of Leal, which is around 1970. 70. Yeah. Bill. <laughs> uh, I mean, so you, you began
1: this by, uh, you know, talking about um, how globally there's been this gentrification and um, that the book was in part, uh, you know, to chronicle the poor and the working classes. Uh, and, and given the, the sort of cultural importance of um, uh, the cultural capitals like Paris and New York and elsewhere, what do you think's at stake? What do you think, you know, the future portends now that, you know, these places are becoming uh, these, you know, playgrounds for the oligarchy?
0: You know, this is why I quit my job as a prophet a long time ago. <laughs> um, I have no idea. I mean, uh, you know, clearly something's got to give. Um, well, I mean, first of all, you know, things are changing. Well, first of all, they're changing in Paris, you know, because we're on the doorstep of Le Grand Paris. You know, it is extending, Paris is extending its borders into, you know, they are going to be the 21st and 22nd and 23rd arrondissement, et cetera. It's going kind to of have Denis, Aubervilliers, Portin. These are part of the city. And, you know, they were formerly... The Balieu. i mean, right now they still are—but so you're going to have a bigger city, and it's going to change its meaning um, as it did when it became a bigger city after the Thiers Wall was built in the 1860s. You know, so there's that, and um, and these suburban regions—you know, suburban has this. It's funny that suburbs and Bellevue kind of mean the same thing, but they have this such wildly opposed connotations in French and English. But anyway, whatever you want to... Serbia, suburbia, uh, this territory is going to... It already has developed a certain culture, but it's, um, it's going to be the epicenter of a lot of what goes on as the city centers just become kind of frozen artifacts. Other than that, you know, I'm... I'm loath to predict. (laughs) Somebody else has got to have a question here.
1: Uh, Can you even call it? I haven't read your book yet. i presume the figure Fantomas.
0: Oh, yeah, Fantomas makes an appearance, yeah.
1: In (laughs) that case, in what presence?
0: Well, you know, I I talk about him in the context of. the fear of crime, the fear of the army of crime, this continued phrase that comes up with representing a folk devil in the Parisian consciousness, Parisian bourgeois consciousness, and, and also the affiliated fear of the criminal mastermind. You know, this idea that there's a criminal society which is parallel to straight society, and, it's, and of course... It, French thinking, right? It would have to be exactly as hierarchical and organized as regular society. And so, just as you have Monsieur Poitcarré on the throne over here, so you have Fantomas as his underworld equivalent. Um, so, you know, it's. I mean, I don't go into extraordinary length or, I mean, as I say, I mean, I, there's so much material. It's so rich and I couldn't stay on any one topic for two long but um, but yeah um, and the fact uh, the, the novels and also the movies and how they had different kinds of imports you know and how the movies um do not have the extravagant nightmare scenarios of the novels, but on the other hand, they're set in real locations. They're filmed on location, and that's one of the amazing things about watching them today. I, I mean the Fayyad originals. I don't mean the later ones, but um, so... Uh, and also, you know, the um, how they really spoke to... In a way, they tried to address the facts of... Um, uh, you know, criminal faits divers of their own time, the, uh, the, the gangsters who were known as Apache, you know, they, they were for real, and but they were somehow cooked up by the press at the same time. And, of course, they are the uh, associates of Fatomas in the novels. Surely someone has another question. Indeed. Yeah. Oh yeah, good. Tosh, go ahead. Jacques um, how does he play
1: in
0: the of yeah, Well, you know, I, I discuss him in um, in I, you know, the, I, there's a kind of lineage um, which just kind of occurred to me when I was putting this together that, you know, it's an interesting. um the, the history of one-man insurrections in the history of Paris, which begins with Lasseneur, the romantic criminal who, if you've seen Children of Paradise, is a character. The, the character doesn't actually do any of the things that Lasseneur did, but anyway, he was um, the ultimate romantic who for whom crime was the ultimate expression of romanticism. And, um, and then there's Liabeuf, who was the petty criminal who, um, was framed by the cops because his girlfriend was a prostitute and they got him for procuring, but he he was not a pimp, as he kept insisting. And he took his vengeance out on the cops, kind of ineffectually, and he went to, even though he didn't kill anybody, he went to the, um, guillotine. Um... And he, the, the the anarchists try to avenge him, but to no avail. And then Merin comes in at the end of this as um, the kind of post-ideological criminal who um, is, declares himself to be more powerful than the state, but the state eventually just Rubs him out in the dirtiest possible way. And, um, and he remains legendary. Nia um, was only legendary for about a year. Lassner uh, was legendary for so long that he's mentioned by virtually every single French writer of the 19th century. And Merin uh, lives on in hip hop, among other places. questions? Yes. Um, I also haven't read the book yet, but I wondered uh, if you worked a lot in archives, and what the difference, perhaps, of working in archives in France was compared to um, in the States. I know low life seems like it has a lot of interaction with the archives. Actually, neither of those books has any interaction with archives because their scope is too big. You know, I worked with archives when I did my book Evidence, for example, which is, that gets, you know, the focus there is very particular because it's a group of crime photographs. Well, m- murder scenes taken by the NYPD between 1914 and 1918. Then you're talking. Then you can go to archives. But with a book of this scope, um, you know, it's, um, it would mm mm-hmm can't find a good metaphor here, but anyway, it's, um, archives are for researching, well, they're for researching needles, and I'm researching haystacks, I guess, in this case, you know. So it's, it's big. I mean, I read a lot of books, a lot of books. I read a lot of newspapers, I read a lot of magazines, I saw a lot of movies, I listened to a lot of records, but in terms of going to archival documents, um, that would have worked if the book was going to be 1800 pages long. Yes. How did the press at
1: the time um, picture these events and alter, how do they create, did they help create this uh, sort of
0: world or did they ignore it or did they romanticize it or You mean events like the Bono gang, for example, and that kind of thing? Uh, Well, they, you know, they went to town. I mean, they, yes, of course, they, they, uh, they sensationalized the hell out of it. Um, and, you know, of course, these items were tailor-made for sensationalism. Uh, you know, it would have been, um, you would have had to have had a bloodless press indeed not to have them be sensationalized. and they did affect everybody's thinking and uh, distort things to various degrees. Um, it's, um, and, of course, it depends on which press you're talking about because there's a great range of press, a g- political range and range in terms of literacy and uh, elite status or non-status. You know, it's, it's hard to generalize about something like that. Well, it's, from what I can you gather
1: your where you write the book is also where there's the dictaphone
0: and the gramophone and all of that that's coming into play, right? So people can have media become something different at that time. Uh, It uh, does. I'm not sure the dictaphone plays much of a part yet in 1911, you know. Um, Certainly Movies do, and you know I mean um, a sim- look at the fact that the Bono gang really did have the world 's first getaway car, and how quickly um, that was no longer their possession at all and entered into you know folklore entered into the movies etc so there 's that you know um, and um, it 's definitely a a lively media landscape. There's one. Ga- there's one book about the Bono Gang. There's a, you know. There's a million books about the Bono Gang. And there's one that starts with this arresting image of going down the streets of Paris and the enormous head of the Bibi Um This was um, a product. It was like the Gerber baby. Um, and um, but and you can see these photographs of this billboard, these billboards. There were a series of them, and the baby is like ten by ten. This head, you know, um, and there's no direct rapport between that and the Bono gang, except that you know it's saying you are already living in this sensationalized, heightened. Surrealist landscape, really. I mean, the you know, the surrealist world of steel engravings is still going on and the neo-surrealist world of gigantic graphics and movies and um, totally immersive media experience is just starting to come up. So the Bono gang, you know, I mean, they didn't arise because of that changed media landscape, but they certainly played their part, uh, if only as, you know, they were among the first stars of this new, just pre-World War I media landscape. Sir? Uh,
1: you did think that low life was uh, something of a template, or that it was, and then you, you forgot, and then you returned to it as a template, you're obviously covering some of the same, uh, time. Were there any points in your research where you felt the stories you told of low life, and the story of this book kind of converging. Did you, did you see anything that uh, you know recall
0: the older book or from? Like well, they're very different, actually. Um, partly because um, New York was a very, very different city from Paris. You know, it was um, it was much more much newer. It was it was still growing. I mean, the the, the period covered by Low Life saw the city um, you know rise like a thermometer along the scale of the spine of Manhattan. Um, Paris was of course growing in the same period but not quite in the same way. Been going on Paris at that point for a couple of thousand years. Um, but furthermore um, one major difference between these two books is that in low life um, I've got to say you know i I wrote Low Life in part because um, I read Herbert Asbury's Gangs of New York. It was a a cult book, passed from hand to hand among my friends. Uh, We all read it. And I read it and I thought, well, Jesus, he doesn't mention any sources here. And surely, you know, if I go back and like track these down these stories there's like more interesting things to be found and guess what every single one of those stories dead ends in the yellow press of the 19th century so there's so many stories already two figures who loom large in low life um, uh, historians have come close to proving never existed they were complete inventions to the press and this includes the entire dead rabbits gang by the way Um, so um um, <laughs> You know, because New York was a frontier town, and um, and you know there would be, and all the newspapers were in one place, and they all stole from each other, and um, you know print the legend and all of this, and everything became a twice-told tale very quickly. Paris, on the other hand, had a lot of observers and a lot of observers who were very good writers and who were very skeptical, and so stories like this that would come. Come up would be covered from eight different points of view almost instantaneously so there was no you know there are very very few cases in this book of a story where I had to say gee there's only you know our guy Joe tells the story and I'm not sure whether to believe it or not because in every case there are multiple sources so you know it's this and many other reasons it's a, this is a much more ample book Yes. Do any
1: key female crime figures uh, appear
0: in your book? You know, I mean, there are a lot of women in this book, lots, but there aren't that many key crime figures unless, except, of course, for uh, Casque d'Or who was um, the famous um, apache girlfriend, played in, in you know, immortalized in the great performance by Simon Signoret in the Jacques Becker film of the same title, which if you haven't seen, you must immediately go watch. Casque d'or, C-A-S-Q-U-E-D apostrophe O-R. And it's, you know, it's Talk about printing the legend. I mean, the, you know, the the reality is much seedier than what appears on the screen. It's a heartbreaking movie. You cannot I defy anybody to watch this movie without crying at the end. Um, in reality, it kind of sputters out. Um, but she was a real person, and she really wasn't. Talk about your intersections of the media landscape and crime. You know, she um, as soon as she hits the, hit the newspapers because she was like the point of the triangle, uh, being romanced by leading gangsters from two uh, opposing gangs. And immediately, her face appeared on postcards. Um, She was painted by some painter who hung the painting in the salon. And she was set to appear in a review at the Bouffe du Nord. Um, most of these were quashed by the police, but the postcards are still around. One of them is in the book. Um, and, you know, she came to a kind of sad and star- sorry end, but she had her 15 minutes. Mm. Mm. Do, you,
1: do you discuss the effect of the two world wars on you this year?
0: A little bit. You know, not a major focus, really. I mean, I, you know, I mean, the wars are obviously important, but um, I decided that was too much of a sidetrack to really get into. Okay. Sir?
1: Um, you're speaking about the range of sources that
0: you were drawing from, mm-hmm. you mentioned the range of written
1: sources, and I'm curious to hear about the visual sources that you're pulling from, whether it's newspapers or artists or post-pontists you just mentioned
0: yeah postcard well, you can see it in the book postcards, sheet music um, also I had a ch- i mean one thing about this book is you know i I think of it in a way as kind of a collage and um, and I love the fact that I was able to bring in you know so many voices of writers who I admire, many of whom haven 't been translated really or, or or not not read much by english readers um, but the the chance to bring in the great 19th century l- engravers and artists, in particular Dumier, Grandville, Gavarni, Steinlen. These people, you know, Valotot—they're practically my co-authors, you know—and um, and then. um, not so many photographs, really, but um, except for postcard photographs, because those were amazing. You know, before World War One, there were postcards made of, I think, almost literally every corner in Paris, including places that it, you know, I mean, in America, I put out, I wrote a book about po- photo postcards some years ago. And yeah, really small towns, you know, ankle deep in mud, etc. There would be a postcard. But they were like made a very small issue by a photographer, printed in the darkroom. These are actual like lithographed cards Put out by a publishing company, and they show like um, uh, the the banks of the Bievre where the um, tanners carried out their work, and the water was rank and foul, and the, the shores were littered with uh, You know, the detritus of the trade. And there's a postcard of this that was sold commercially. You know, so, and, but you have to remember that postcards, we think of them as the tourist object. You know, you go to visit the Sphinx and you send everybody a postcard, or you once did because nobody sends postcards anymore, seemingly. Um, But at that time, uh, they were really used by people who lived in the neighborhood. Um, tourists would send postcards of the Eiffel Tower or whatever but your corner in Belleville you would buy a picture of the nearest location on a postcard and use it to correspond with your family in Haute-Savoie or wherever you came from Sir yeah, I, just,
1: I have a somewhat strange question about, just about nostalgia in sort of the process of figuring out what Paris is I mean, you see this a little bit in Balzac, you certainly see in Baudelaire, definitely in Walter Benjamin. There's already a sense in the people that we consider the touchdowns that there was something in the past mm-hmm. that they're trying to articulate what's changed. So is there like a self-consciousness there that you were aware that it's already kind of layered in this nostalgia going back to...
0: You know? Absolutely. Nostalgia goes back at least as far as the 1840s. Um, you know, and, and it, it, it starts really cranking up into high gear um, during Haussmann's renovations, but already, you know, even um, uh, Priva, the, the great Privat who's one of my, somebody I've Fell completely in love with in writing this book it was talk about Flaneur, this guy who uh, did nothing but walk apparently, and uh, until his untimely death of tuberculosis in his 40s, um, he chronicled every nook of the city. And he talks about the nostalgia for Belleville, that is for the Belleville that was filled with rustic wine shops and, you know, outdoor dance pavilions before it became part of the city. So, you know, this is... And now, I mean, you know, there's like several further layers of nostalgia about Belleville now, but, you know, there's this kind of antediluvian nostalgia going on. And of course, you know, you remember Baudelaire's famous phrase, the heart of a city changes faster than uh, the, was it was the life of the city? I'm, the city changes faster than the human heart. I'm probably garbling that out of my mind, but you know that he wrote that um, in in re- reference to what Hausmann was doing to the city, and the Goncourt brothers, you know, mourning the the city of um, the, the era of Louis Philippe, in which they felt they had a stake and suddenly they could see this city of the unwashed masses coming in around 1850 and were driven to despair. You know, so there's like layer upon layer upon layer and you know there's the nostalgia of the mid 19th century the nostalgia of the later 19th century nostalgia there's even there's nostalgia in the 1920s the surrealists are feeling nostalgia for the passage de l'opéra which is about to be demolished there's the nostalgia after the war when you know it seems like there's a brief glimpse of the whole past being resurrected in the late 40s but everybody knows that can't last the nostalgia of the 1960s, when Malraux and other gangsters are destroying what's left of the old Paris and uh, you know the Latin Quarter and the Marais, um, and you know right up to the present, it's just one big nostalgia after another, just big wad of nostalgia. The whole thing is one massive nostalgia. <laughs> Will uh, <coughs>
1: have you ever thought of making a kind of SIS? Uh, like a, an object that uh, is in multimedia, like uh, one that directly incorporate you directly incorporate music,
0: directly incorporate old film stock, directly incorporate images, and have it all inter-penetrate. Um I'm way too old for that. <laughs> you know, I'm 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 sorry. I mean, in terms of um, in terms of technology, I'm. Still back in 1974, or thereabouts. And I um, I admire that stuff. I think it's great. And if somebody wanted to do something like that um, and uh, ask me questions about it, I'd say, yeah, I'll go for it. You know. But um, I myself, mm, no. Okay. One, more. One more question. But the book is available for option, right? So if so, so wanted to do the Bingo. Yeah. <laughs> One more question. Anybody? Okie dokie. Well, thank you very much.
1: You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.